things, I gave you um, a reminder list there of the rules for uh, objective interpretation. These are things that we have been over many, many times. And um, is there anyone in here unfamiliar with this list that I need to explain anything further? Everybody's good. Okay, I'm glad to hear that. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to literally take each of these objective observation steps and we're going to execute them today through what we look at at concerning chapter 15. Um, Let's start then, in order to do this, the very first thing is never violate your known doctrines and that context is king, correct? So what we want to do first and foremost is, again, establish our contextual setting fully. Now, this doesn't just mean who's the author, who's the recipient, but we need to develop just a little bit more than that so that we see exactly what's going on here historically in this this book. So we know the author, and I'm just going to put him up here. We know he's Luke, and I'm not going to go beyond that. We did it last week. We know uh, the author's purpose. What was that? Okay, it's the second volume of a two-part writing. Okay, and and its purpose is to what? It is a, what kind of a what kind of a record is this? It's a historical record. So the, it's a historical record. So the importance about that particular point is that how do you interpret historical records? It's a literal interpretation, right? Not that that's really confusing in this book, but it is good to remind you of that once in a while. And this historical record records really kind of two things, although they're almost the same, but what are the two things that basically are being recorded in here? The spreading of the gospel and the birthing of the church. So I'm going to put on here, birthing of church. And we want to, we want to expound on that, birthing of church and spreading of gospel. Okay. One of the things that we have seen then is one of the major subjects in here is the gospel. And so we have been developing little by little all the major points, the qualities of the gospel message that are significantly important that need to be both known by us and kind of memorized so that we make sure that somewhere along the line as we are giving out the gospel, we make sure that this is a faith um, that people enter into in the name of Jesus Christ and understanding his death, burial, resurrection, right? Um, so the spreading of the gospel is an important quality of this. And in some ways it's going to, uh, to uh, knowing that that's an important part, that, that, that the spreading of the gospel, meaning we're, gonna, we're gonna learning these doctrines, Right? Doctrines of gospel are what we are actually picking up on analytically, so to speak, as we move through this, correct? Everyone with me? Okay, wake up. All right, now, the birthing of the church. Now, explain that more specifically in reference to a, to a doctrine. What is this doctrine about birthing of church? What is, in essence, has happened? Okay. Okay, so part of the the church, I'm going to put under here, 
just to expound on it a little bit more, is structure. Structure of it, okay. Okay, okay. So, uh, unity of basically two people groups, right? That before did not have a unity, correct? So, the, this, this new thing, the church, a new thing, I'm going to put on, on here again to emphasize it. It's unity of Jews and Gentiles in one body, Correct? All right, so we know that. Now, here, here's another one that's really important for you to remember, and I know we've overlooked it a little bit as we've been doing this, and it's my fault for not bringing it up more clearly, I think. Um, when the church was birthed, how, did it, how was it birthed in chapter 1 and 2, actually? The Holy Spirit fell. When the Holy Spirit fell, what was the new thing that happened there? What was, in, in, in an essence... I wouldn't say inaugurated because it actually was inaugurated at the cross, but what happened when the Holy Spirit fell? The Holy Spirit, the uh, gospel was proclaimed in languages that they had not learned. Okay, that's the event that happened. What was the doctrine behind the, behind the falling of the Holy Spirit? What happened? Thank you. A new covenant. Yay. Good job. Okay, Heinz gets a star. Good job. A new I know, he is, ha ha, yes he is. Okay, so, the structure of it is new, it's, it's some of the new things that we're seeing um, kind of uh, being presented as we move along is that this idea of the unity of Jews and Gentiles in one body, that is definitely new, and by that, by the way, it's also a new covenant, and therefore, one of the other things that we have um, actually analytically been observing is this new relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in relationship to this new entity, right? So before the Godhead had a relationship to who? What congregation? The Jews, the Jewish congregation. Now it's their relationship to the body of Christ or the church, right? This new congregation. So a new covenant, I'm going to put it here. A new congregation, which could actually fall under this a little bit, but I just think it's important to understand a new congregation. Uh, and I don't put it on here relationship with. I'm just going to do this with God, a triangle. Mm-hmm. The other side of it, that the old covenant is not in effect anymore. Right. So it's technically not in effect. That's right. New congregation, new covenant, and old is uh, passed away. Okay, there we go. It's passed away. But it's passed away only technically, right? No, it is not. Now, that is something that we need to look at. Okay, so it's passed away, but I'm putting on there technically. And the reason I say that is not because it is not passed away, as Hebrews tells us it is, but that who is having a problem with this 
new thing coming in are the congregation members, right? They're not quite sure how they're supposed to operate, how they're supposed to be structured, what they're supposed to be doing, what they're not supposed to be doing. Earlier, we've talked about it. I had mentioned that um, one of the things that has not changed about God in his new covenant is his moral and ethical laws, right? Although we technically have done away with the old law concerning the temple, particularly, right, and specifically, because Jesus has come as something that is better. Now, the book of Hebrews addresses this over and over. I mean, it's a whole writing in the book of Hebrews about how they are to uh, uh, put away the old and move into the new, that Jesus is better. He's a better priest. He's a better covenant. He's a better sacrifice. Yes. Well, I'm not sure. I'm not really completely sure. It is early. Okay, we were just talking about that. Where do we think Acts probably is written? Because we're not specifically... When it was written, when did it occur? It may not have been written and published immediately as things are going on. I mean, there's a few years going on. Has to be, it has to be... This is what Susan and I came to. It has to be when, Susan... Right, because it's recorded, and so it had to have happened for them to record it, right? So the writing of it had to have happened at the end. So you're right, the recording of things as he went along. Now, what we know Luke did, according to Luke 1, he says he thoroughly investigated all these things that he might give an exact account. Now, that's what he says about Luke 1, and we know this is his volume 2, and so I would say that that pertains to be true as well in this writing, that he's investigated these things. So I would assume... That because these events have happened and he's recording them, it has to be afterwards, right? Um, but there's a significant event in history which is never mentioned in the book of Acts, which is the destruction of the temple, right? I mean, we don't hear anything about that in here. So it also makes me say that probably, although I'm not going to stand on any definite on it, but I would say probably written before 70 A.D., but yet after 68, <laughs> So somewhere in there, right, would be my guess. The last entry of of these events, I think, was 68, the last missionary journey, 68 A.D., is that correct? Um, Actually, okay, 67, okay. His first one, that's all we've looked at, right? Exactly. But these other, but the other three, which are going to be recorded before we get to the end, are far, are further down the road. They're in the sixties. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. Rome. His imprisonment. His second Roman imprisonment. Probably was it four, oh, fourth missionary journey. Why do I have that on here? That's interesting. Well, in any event, what we know, what I, the, my guess would be somewhere in the 60s. And the reason for that is it's after all these events have happened, but be, 
before the fall of the temple because it's not mentioned. Okay, so, and I would think that if you're writing a historical record of a birthing of something new and the passing away of something old, the fall of the temple would be quite profound and would be quite significant in this record. So if it had happened, I'm absolutely convinced it would have been in here. Okay, so the fact that it's not in here and how significant that would be to this birthing of the new thing, um, that tells me it probably has not yet happened. Okay, all right, so with all that, now we've got a pretty good foundation going. We're understanding that this is about the church, it's a new thing. Uh, and everything about it is new. It's a new covenant. It's a new congregation of people. They're trying to figure out how to work together. And I would say, therefore, in conclusion about all this, we are at the in-between place. Okay? That's where we are on the timeline of of all these events that are being recorded here is we are at the in-between time. And I think keeping that in mind as we are doing our observations in Acts 15 in particular would be quite helpful, would you not think? Because there are some things in here that get a bit complicated. Uh, And it also, for, for those of us who have been in Christian faith for a long time, some of these issues is like, well, why are they even talking about their course? Of course, right? But yet they were discussing it. And so obviously it was, it was a complication for them that they did need to iron out. All right. So now um, Craig mentioned the, the covenants, the previous covenants. And the fact that we've come into a new covenant then brings up to us the fact that we do kind of have to have an understanding, a basic understanding of those covenants in order to have enough background to move forward in observing the rest of these other things because some things are said in here which if you don't have that understanding of of these other covenants you would probably be left in the dark or floundering a bit for getting a good interpretation correct now i'm not going to teach a full out lesson on the three covenants okay however in this particular account two covenants really come up clearly what are they The Mosaic Covenant, or the Covenant of the Law, and then what we're in is the New Covenant. Although it's never mentioned by the word covenant, it's obvious that those are the two struggles that are being tug-of-war against with one another. Now, I say, however, particularly for the sake of people in general, and I know that it's surprisingly to us, uh, or to me as, as, you know, just as a Christian, it's surprising to me how many people also do not understand the Abrahamic covenant and how it relates. You all have had this teaching many times. So for you guys, this is old hat renewal. Very quickly, just tell me, what do you know about the Abrahamic covenant? What were some basic principles about about that covenant? What was promised? Land, seed, nation. Very good. Nice job, Janice. Okay. And so he promised a land seed and a nation. Now, who is the seed that's being promised? Jesus. Where do we find um, commentary interpretation on that in the New New Testament? That's right. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16 specifically. And it says what, Susan? And and that it spoke of the seed and that seed is Christ. That's right. And that seed is Christ. So... 
it, in Act, or in um, Galatians 3, I think it's verses 6, 7, and 8, there's a little section in there where it talks about um, the gospel had been preached to Abraham. And that he believed God and then it was credited to him as righteousness. Correct? So with those basic things in place, we now know then about that, that covenant with Abraham. That when, it, when Abraham entered into that, were there any conditions placed on it? No, it was an unconditional covenant. What did that covenant result in for Abraham? Salvation. So it is a salvation covenant. And how do you enter into that covenant? By faith. Okay, now when you move into Hebrews, Hebrews is going to expound on that and give you more insight and more detail about that. Again, there's more commentary on that in various places. So what we know about the Abrahamic covenant, it's, a con- it's an unconditional covenant. It's a covenant of grace. It's by faith that you enter into it. It resulted in salvation. In the same way, in the new covenant, we also do the same thing, right? By faith, by uh, believing on the 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 God who speaks to us and tells us the gospel principles by believing him, then we enter into this covenant. Okay, so the old covenant. Now, so then how does the old covenant, if the old covenant is the promise of the seed, then how does that relate to the new covenant? So what has happened with the promise of, of the Abrahamic covenant? It's been fulfilled. So the new covenant fulfills the quality of the seed specifically, right, in the new covenant. Now, so knowing that, then you've got two covenants, one on each side, that both basically are the same, have the same qualities. They're, they're unconditional. They're by faith. They result in salvation, right? All right. What about in the middle then with the law? How is it uniquely different from the others, or is it different? It is a conditional. Tell me, do you guys know about where in the book of Deuteronomy that you're going to find this very obvious explanation that it's conditional? I don't don't know chapter and verse, but I didn't... You don't need it all. Chapters are good. The people, when God said this is my law, the Mm -hmm. people Yes, they did. They, we will do it. And then they promptly went down the hill and did not do it, right? <laughs> exactly. Okay, well, in Deuteronomy 28 and 29, you are going to see where there he says, these are, the, these are the requirements, and if you obey them, what? Blessings. Blessings. And if you disobey them? Cursings. That's the covenant of the law. It is based on condition of obedience, correct? Um, how long was this covenant to stay in place? according to what we looked at this week in Galatians. Until who should come? Until the seed should come. That same seed that was promised to Abraham, which is fulfilled in the new covenant, this interim covenant was to be in place until the seed would come. Therefore, what does that tell you about this particular covenant of the law once the new covenant was implemented? That it would be finished, that it would be done away, right? And Hebrews then later, which will be written later or somewhere along the line in here in history, it explains that very clearly, talking about how Jesus is the better covenant. All right, so 
with that much laid out, and, and I have a chart on it. I did myself a whole chart, so I will send this out to you guys so you'll have it. It will be very familiar, I think, most of it. It's to, a lot of it is stuff that we have done before. Um, but for those who don't, you know, remember this much detail, it's helpful to slip this into your homework lesson for this week so that you'll have it the next time. Um, but what we looked at on homework on day four, so if you go to day four on your homework, you're going to see where we looked at all the points about salvation. So hang on to that list, pull it out, and, keep, and have it ready, because we want to talk about that in a couple of minutes here, okay? Yes. Individual. Exactly. That, you know, they did. And you know what's interesting to me is the church today even often misses that point. We don't, we forget to teach it, I think, from a very early age that the, the covenant of the law was a corporate covenant to a nation. It was not entered into by the individual. It was entered into by the collective whole. And thereby it, the collective whole was to live in, in light of these principles of obedience if they wanted to be blessed as a nation. And the purpose was that God was calling for himself a people, right, who would then glorify him. And so what was in Ezekiel, which we just came out of, what was the big complaint that God had against them? What had they done to his name in the... They had profaned it in the nations. And so because they had not kept the covenant like they were supposed to and lived as holy people, because they are called by his name, which means they are representing him in the world, which is also a quality of covenant, right, that we all have, that we are to represent our covenant partner in the world. People who say you can come into Christianity and live any way you want are, are, are absolutely dead wrong. Because Christianity is a high calling to holy living. Not that that save you, that holy living saves you, but rather you are saved according to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. It's by grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourself, right? It's a gift of God, least any man should boast. But then what does it say in 10? That we are saved unto what? Good works. The purpose that God called us out to be his children is then to be a light in the world. And therefore, we must live according to that holy standard. So it is a requirement in covenant that there be um, a true picture of your covenant partner. And that's why Jesus says you will know a tree by its fruit. If they're mine, then they will bear good fruit, right? And if they're not mine, then they are the sheep. Um, it, they are the wolves in sheep's clothing, right, who come am- amongst the sheep and they cause harm and destruction for God's name and for the people that they, that they harm, basically. Okay, now, right, so context is we're in a new thing. Context is it's a new covenant. It's a, new, it's a new congregation of those relationships with one another. We have to come to a place where we get this unity of the Jews and the Gentiles, and that is a struggle. So keeping all that in mind then, another key point to keep, I think that's important anyway, is one of our key subjects is, uh, um, hold on, I can't spell in, <laughs> a key subject is um, signs right? 
how, how dominantly have we seen signs operating in this book so far? What has been the purpose of signs in the book of Acts? To show, to show that the Holy Spirit fell, that was one event. What else? That's right. Confirmation that God's in the midst of whatever the event is, like the falling of the Holy Spirit or like the healing of the, the lame man, right? Um, any event that is accompanied by a supernatural sign then is assumed by the Jews to be then God confirming that God is with him. This is why we're going to see in this account again where Peter brings up the fact that there was confirmation, right? That God, had, God was with it and, God, and that God had sent him to the Gentiles. All right, so we, uh, some other points that we have already addressed so far concerning the church as far as doctrines that we've come up um, uh, come up against, things that we've had to, or we haven't had to, they had to um, basically establish uh, the workings of the church, right? So we had back in uh, one chapter where there was some discipline that took, on, took place, right? Ananias and Sapphira. So we saw that to me was the real definitive statement where God is saying, look, my, my moral and ethical principles hold true. What was true before, even in the old covenant, is still true today. And God does not tolerate the lying. And therefore, he came down very harshly because this was, going to, to, this was a point of lying to the Holy Spirit. And, and God himself said, this is not acceptable. And you need to understand, church that I have the prerogative as, the, as God of this church, as the sovereign of this church, if I so choose to take life. And I don't think we really consider that very seriously, even today. I think we kind of blow that off as of wealth. But I think we have been spoon-fed for so long a gospel that says, oh, but he loves us, and he wants good for us, and he wants to bless us. And all that is true. But do not, do not then... Um, divorce him from his other character qualities, of which is holiness and righteousness, where he expects a standard, and he will retain that standard, right? And he had to in the birthing of this, right? Because we're at a new thing. We're in the in-between place, and so he had to establish that. So he came down very harshly on them in that moment, and it was to make a statement. Don't you hate to be the firstborn? <laughs> Parents make a statement with that firstborn every time. <laughs> okay. Um, so God's holiness is not changed, okay? Um, let's go on now then. That was just one event. So that was, I just wanted to show that as an example of another uh, place where church is defining its function and purpose. And so that's kind of comparable to what we're looking at here. We're looking at church and trying to define this. All right, so open up your observation worksheets, and let's just do very quickly a, a, a um, run through Acts 15 on the whole. So what did you see in Acts chapter 15 is the primary subject of this particular record in 15? There seems to be disagreements among the brethren, and actually on a couple of different subjects, right? These debates or these disagreements in the church. So what we, are, what we can then assume is if this is what God is showing us in this historical record, 
is this birthing of something new and how it should function, right? And so what he's doing is he's recording event after event and showing us demonstrations of different situations and how they're handling them and how God either affirms that or rejects it, correct? And then it's allowing us then to build our understanding of church. Did you ever think that the book of Acts was that important to us? I mean, to, to me, this is a fundamental book that teaches us exactly who we as the church are supposed to be, what we're to operate uh, like, and how we're to handle issues like discipline and conflict, right? So here we're seeing a conflict. Um, all right, so the first conflict we see is between who? Let's look at these players in this, at, at this particular... Now, I have titled it the Jerusalem Council Debate. Um, we know that there was one other council that met at Jerusalem to make a decision, which, which was earlier with Peter, right? Peter had gone in chapter 10 to Cornelius and taken the gospel, and the Holy Spirit had fallen. There had been witnesses with him at that time of the Jewish faith that were, had gone with him when he went there. What was it that took Cornelius to, uh, or took Peter to Cornelius, by way? Again, a sign. Another supernatural sign. By a vision, he was taken to this place. And the flip side of that was, what did Cornelius have? A vision. So what does that tell you about Cornelius as far as his relationship with God? Yeah, that he had true relationship with God because God was speaking to him. Um, the scripture itself said that he was a devout man and he did all these good things. It really did explain it in very clear words. But then as a, a confirming sign, he also was given a vision. I think that's pretty cool. God could have done it any other way he wanted, but he chose to give him a vision. And he gave him a vision, vision basically as a counterpart and equal to what he did for Peter. Therefore, bringing them on what kind of a plane? Equal. Equality before God, that he did not view one higher or greater than the other. He he approaches both men in the same way for the same accomplishment goal, which is salvation, right? All right, so I love that. So the, the Jerusalem Council, so let's list the players first. Who is involved in this particular debate? There's, there's basically three groups. Okay, these people who are believing Pharisees. And we saw that in, it it entered, well, I guess they were introduced to us in verse 1, but then it goes on down in verse 5 that tells us they're of the sect of the Pharisees, correct? And they had believed. All right, then who else is involved? Okay. Okay. The apostles. Now, are you saying the apostles and elders in verse 2? Okay. That's right. These are the council. And their, their role will be to what? Yeah, to decide the debate, basically, right? All right, and who was the last group of people? 
Paul and Barnabas, and it says, and some of the others. <laughs> so, and then later it starts naming them for us, but in the beginning it just says Paul and Barnabas. So letting us know Paul and Barnabas are there. Okay, so that's going to be 15-2 also, I think it was. Obviously not, because he was in the other group. He was. Isn't that an interesting point, too, Craig, that you bring up? Because he also himself was a Pharisee. So if anybody could debate with these Pharisees, it would have been Paul, you would think, right? He should have been very convincing to them. And yet, apparently, is that the case? Was he able to iron things out at that point? What happened? What kind of a, of a struggle was there going on between these Right. So apparently the debate did not resolve things. It only caused everybody to get heated and stand on their, each of us on their own side. Now, would you say we see things like that even today? Absolutely we do. Um, I'm thinking that this might be a really good lesson that needs to be taught more often, I think, as far as helping us to understand that within the church, we don't always all agree, do we? Um, there are on occasion things that need to be basically come to the round table and thrown out and let everybody speak their mind and begin to give their points uh, on why they believe what they believe so that then it can be talked out, correct? And I love the way that Paul and Barnabas and those who were with him, some of those who were on his side on this subject, how they handled giving their apologetics on this. So in a way, you could almost say this is an apologetics type of demonstration of how did they go about apologetically standing where they stood saying against these Pharisees that they did not agree with them on the subject matter. How did they go that through that apologetically? So we know who the players are now. So we've got three players. Now we want to see um, the case. What is the case? That's being presented. What was the problem? Okay. So the Pharisee, yeah. Okay. So they were teaching. As a matter of fact, this is kind of interesting because these. It also implies here that these Pharisee uh, believers were over these others, correct? That they had a position of some kind of authority in that they were teaching them, right? And so as they were teaching them, it came to their to the notice of Paul and others that they were teaching them something that they did not agree with, right? And it was causing problems. And even what's interesting is even these new believers apparently may have even had some issues because it may have got started out with one of them going to Paul and grumbling and saying, Paul, they're telling us that we have to do these things. And so Paul then got involved in this, right? I can just see the whole thing happening. So these Pharisees were teaching that the Gentiles had to be um, circumcised and also to do what? Uh huh. So Gentiles have to be circumcised and 
So that's one. And then number two, they had to keep the law of Moses. In order to what? To be saved. And that is probably the, the, the real clincher in the verse that really clarifies for us where the issue is here on this. Gentiles have to be circumcised and they have to keep the law in order to be saved. Now, for us who've got the, we've got the book of Romans, we've got the book of Galatians, we've got, the, we've got all these other books to go to, right? But at this time in history, they did not. And this was the beginning then of this debate about how is salvation actually imparted and what what is required of a person to be saved, correct? All right, so in in a way, there's a title for these guys, and it's talked about in, in Romans. Do you remember the two people groups? We had Judaizers. Very good, Susan. Ooh, she's sharp. She got it. The Judaizers. Because what did Judaizers on the whole, and there were a lot of them, and they continued to be a problem in the early church, okay? So even though this council ends up with somewhat of a, of a solution in this, a temporal solution anyway, until the ri- later writings come and are much more declarative, um, these Judaizers continue to be a problem because Paul then later has to write the whole book of Romans, basically, in order to fix it. And Galatians too, yes. All right, so what in essence then are these Pharisees telling them? They had to become, so let's write that down. Equal, they had to become Jews. Okay, I like that. Let's put that on there. And the gospel by faith, which is by faith, right, is not enough. Must add to it. So, again, that says Judaizers. So, wow, we've done good already to start in this contextual setting of seeing more clearly what the undertone of this issue is just by saying this much. What they are really saying there is that they had to become Jews first, then they could get saved. So nobody in the whole world on planet Earth can get saved unless they're a Jew first. Now, what about that Ethiopian eunuch that Peter or uh, Philip had preached to earlier? Oops. That was, there was a problem, right? What about Cornelius and his whole household? Oops, that would be a problem, right? So by doing that, by considering that, one of the things that I think is important at this point would be to say, okay, wait a minute, they have to, be, they have to become Jews to be saved. Is that what Peter has, or is that what Luke has been recording for us thus far concerning the unfolding of the of this message. So one of the steps according to setting context and making sure that you get the full context is um, the use of the whole book of Acts, right? So going back and looking at the flow of thought up to this point concerning this subject of salvation and how someone receives salvation would be really helpful if you just review in your mind what else has been said about this in the flow of thought. So we're going to go do that in just a second here. We're going to look at flow of thought. 
after we get a little bit more on the rest. We're going to talk about that. We're going to start in chapter 10 and go through 14 so that you can just kind of see just some very major bullet points is all I'm going to bring out. And I probably won't write them all down for you. They're on my chart, but we'll talk about them. Okay. All right. So we've seen the players and we see the case. Now, what was, how did the objection get handled? Um, I think I'm going to put it over here because I don't think there's going to be room there. Okay, those objecting. The first one who objected, of course, was Paul himself, right? And what was Paul, Paul doing? He was simply debating, right? He debated them. Well, okay, Paul and Barnabas. I just don't want to write all that. <laughs> okay, he, deb- he debated. Or, or, you're right. It probably should be they. they. Paul and Bar- They. P&B. They. Uh-huh. Yeah, P&B, peanut butter and... I feel me. Okay, uh, they debated with uh, the Pharisee believers, right? All right, so that was in 15.2. That's where you see the start of that. Then, um, who was the next one that's given to us as, that speaks up concerning this issue? Peter. Okay, so what does Peter have to say on this? Yeah, very interesting. So in essence, when he says that, what is he reminding them of? Is he, is he reminding them about something? Yeah, so he's really, Peter actually reminds them of something that they already knew, reminds of something known, right? And, and he says, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, both, both groups. Yes, and so he, first he reminds them about something known, which was back in chapter 10, what had to do with Cornelius, right? About his vision, about his being sent to the Gentiles, Right? All that was, um, all of that was known to them that he was speaking to because guess what? He had already been to before this council once before on that very subject, correct? Where he initially had to defend the, the salvation of the Gentiles to them. And how did he go about doing that? Do you remember the there details? Were other, there were other Jews that accomplished what he had known. He had to take some believers to prove that. Yes. Yes. Eyewitnesses, that's right. If you have a witness with you that can also verify that what is being said is truthful. He had several. That's right. And so when he went back, he says, not only did they receive the Holy Spirit, not only was I sent to him, not only did I have a vision, he had a vision. We all came together. Through this vision, God had taught him something, which was what? That there is no distinction. So he's really, in one little tiny statement there, he's reminding them of a whole lot of stuff, right? Because it'd be like me coming to you and we've had a previous conversation and I'm like, remember when we talked about this? Yeah, that's all I say. And then we move on with the conversation. Because you remember everything. And that's exactly what Peter is doing here. He's making a reference back to what God had done with him uh, for the Gentiles' benefit previously. So he reminds them of something 
something known in chapter 10. And then he, then he makes a conclusion and he says, why test God? I like that too because it makes me think of back in chapter 5, I think it was, where Ananias and Sapphira tested the Lord, right? They had, were testing the Lord. Same thing. It's, very, it's, it's almost like he was saying, look, you're in danger here. When you start testing the Lord on things like this, this is, this is putting you in a dangerous uh, position. And he, remi- he testified to them the gospel, he said, remind them of, of his call by God to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He did that in 15.7, right? The other interesting thing is, is that he, he, he talks about a yoke that none of us could bear. So he's basically saying, hey, he's, he's admitting Jews couldn't keep the law. No, okay, so let's put that on here. No Jew could keep that law. And what verse was that? That was 15, like Uh, 10. 10. I was going to say 9, but okay, 10. All right. And so why test God? No Jew could have kept that law or never did keep that law. Romans is written in in great detail on that very subject. Romans chapter 7 gives a lot on that about uh, under the law as a Jewish man, he, he had this struggle, this tug of war with knowing the right thing to do, but he couldn't seem to always do it. And at the very conclusion of it, it says, praise be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. What will set me free from this, this uh, body of death, right? And he says, praise be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's Jesus that releases you from the law. As, as, a, as a Jew under the law, it is impossible, even though you know the right thing to do. And he's saying to them, why should we put them under that yoke? We couldn't do it. Right? So honestly, he's given this really great testimony to a couple of things. Number one, he's saying, you've already seen some evidence, so he reminds them. Right? Then he steps into drawing a conclusion and, and, and um, clarifying for them that salvation by works never worked. Right? It didn't work for them. As Jews, why should they then put it upon the Gentiles? So he actually makes a very pragmatic kind of uh, apologetics here, where he's just simply saying, look, we couldn't do it. Could you do it? I mean, really, if you could think of him looking at any one of those Pharisees that are present there saying, could, did you ever keep the law fully and perfectly? Right? And th- the answer would be no. They all know the answer would be no. Anyone living under that system would know the answer was no. It's impossible to fully keep that law. You're always going to have issues where you're going to have to go back to the temple again, give another sacrifice because you messed up. You touched something unclean or you did something in an improper way, right? Why test God? No Jew could keep the law. And so then he concluded what? You've already actually mentioned it. Yeah, we're all concluded. We are all saved by grace. Okay, and he saw that that was in 15.8, verse 8. We're all saved by grace. Uh, He testified to them, uh, oh, no, it wasn't 8. 11, sorry. I looked at the wrong line. Okay, Peter concluded, "We we believe that we Jews... Right, are saved through the grace of Jesus in the same way as they are also. We are all saved by grace, is the conclusion. Then, therefore, um, 
Now, this is Peter. So then who jumps into the conversation? I like this part, too. James, I love it. Okay, so now we have James. Well, I know. I just put them some of the others, and then you get to see them when you drop when you drop this down. That's how I did it. But you can definitely, if you wanted to list each one of those Peter and James over here, you can definitely do that. Okay, good for you. I'm so glad. That's good. Yeah, I just was taking shortcuts <laughs> because my you know, my chart is so full. I cannot. I couldn't get another thing in here. I had to. I would have to start another piece of paper. So <laughs> I just said I can't do any more on it. Okay, James. So we have Paul, Peter. Now we're at James. Now what does James do that is absolutely fabulous? He quotes James uh, quotes the, word of God. the prophets, right? Well, the word of God. I know. I know. Yeah, yeah. I am always amazed in myself too that you know that what things God brings to my remembrance at different times and how He does that. And I'm and I sometimes I even say things even when I'm teaching. Even things that come out of my mouth and then I'll go. Oh, that was really good. Where'd that come from? You know, because I really can't believe I said it. And, and how did I even think of that? Because and you just know it's the, the Lord that's guiding you really to say and get the right points in. And I'm not saying everything I say is from the Holy Spirit. I pray that it is. But, but it is a supernatural working of God when he is executing the teaching of his word. And this is one of those moments where... The standards, the doctrinal standards of what church is going to be like and how these people were going to understand the gospel message, which is one of our things over here. This gospel, these doctrines of the gospel have to be retained and had to be, a standard had to be set, which is why we have the whole New Testament eventually written. You know, Paul gets in there and says, okay, I got to tackle some of these things. And he starts writing books right? Under inspiration of God. Let me, let me clarify this for everyone. He didn't think he knew everything. He didn't think he was such a big smarty, right? He just thought these are necessary for God's people to know. And he, through God's inspiring him, he sat down to write. Paul was a pretty smart guy. He was a pretty smart guy. But I can tell you what, he also had a lot of opposition against him. There were people who did not like him because... And they still don't. And they don't like him because he takes a stand on things. And he's very clear in where, you know, he basically draws lines in the sands and he says, this is right and this is wrong. And people really don't like those kind of people. I know. Yes. Yes, we do. <laughs> I would never do that. What did you say? <laughs> yes. It's really amazing. They were really on two different sides. Yes. But there was a lot of order in there. Let's talk about it. 
but you don't hear anything that we shoot each other or... Yeah, thank you, Heinz. No guns in the, in the courtroom. You know, this is exactly where we were going to go next, is, is looking at this from, you know, judicially in our system today in the church, what does this demonstrate to us about how churches should function when they have issues? And trust me, we're always going to have issues. There's going to be times when there's one, one parishioner against another on a doctrinal point, and there, there needs to be someone who makes a decision as to which one is the correct interpretation so that everyone is taught the correctness, right? So that there's a standard of purity which is retained. And, and Timothy, he speaks of that, retain the standard of sound doctrine. Well, how do you do that if you don't have these councils that come together where pastors and elders and other leaders who are teachers and knowledgeable people of the Word of God come together and say, well, yes, but this, yes, and also this, and don't forget this. And one of the things I love about what we're doing again this morning is through this inductive process, I'm showing us how to come to sound interpretation. Rather than just jumping to conclusions and being mad at one another and getting in a, in a lockmate like they are in Congress right now, right, between us and them, uh, Syria and uh, the United States right now are trying to make a negotiation. Do you think they're ever going to come to it? No. Why? Because they both stand completely in opposite courts and no one will compromise, right? And the compromises that they, can, they want us in America to make are compromises which cannot be compromised on because it totally abolishes the, the whole agreement. I mean, that's just one example of the issue, but Congress is another one. Our own Congress can't seem to come to uh, conclusions because they won't come to the table and talk reasonably and use good, um, obvious facts. And this is what I love. They're putting facts out on the table, and they're confirming it through signs. Yes. And we don't have sound doctrine today. No. Well, we do. We do. They just don't know it. The church. Yes, they do. They sure do. That's exactly right. And not only that, but they jump into scripture and, and say, well, this is what it says, so this is what it means. And they don't even take into account any of these other principles of does it violate known doctrine? What is the context? What's the author's purpose of writing? What's the historical setting? They don't take any of that into consideration. Exactly. What does the whole council say? Here we're dealing with believers disagreeing with believers. When you start looking at Congress and... I know. I'm just using that as an example. Yeah, no, yeah, no, no. I'm, I'm not trying to make an equal. I'm just saying, you know, when you got, when people get into a locked situation and they cannot learn from one another and they're not willing to come to, as they did, these councils. And trust me, there were a bunch of these councils early in this church. Um, and, there, and there were a lot more councils yet to come where things like these creeds are determined for, like the Nicene Creed, which was established eventually. They came together to, for councils about who is, who is God the Father, who is the Holy Spirit, what is salvation, what about baptism. They came together for all kinds of councils and had to discuss these through. Why? Because we're in something new. It's called a new covenant. It's different from what the old was. So these people, you know, 
we kind of envy them to some degree because they're at the beginning and all these exciting things are happening. But boy, they had a lot of hard work because they had to be willing to give up the old and press into the new. Let me read you a little passage here. This is out of um, Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 6, now I read this to you guys a few weeks back when we were discussing the subject of baptism, right? And um, I'm going to read it again, but this time just think of it from the perspective of pressing into something new. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, about the Christ, meaning the Old Testament teaching, right, of him being the seed to come and the promise of Abraham and so forth, And then press on into maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. What are the dead works? The temple. Don't go back to that. Don't lay that again. We don't need that anymore. It's done. And he said, and also don't need to, should not need to um, uh, have foundations laid again about faith in God. Or of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Those are all things that they had been taught previously. He says, and this we shall do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then they have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. And it goes on. It talks about since, since they again, if they go back to the temple and give those sacrifices again, they crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame, saying what he did once for all at the cross was not sufficient. I've got to go back to the temple and give more sacrifices of animals. And so they are rebuked here, here in this particular account. And they're saying, press in then to this new thing. It's a new thing, and that's exactly what we're seeing here in Acts 15. It's a new thing. And so now they've hit a challenging spot, and they're trying to clarify for themselves what, um, what, how they're going to handle it and what their final decisions are going to be. So James, I love it, so Paul debates them on it. And we don't know what Paul said, but he debated. Peter reminds them of something they knew already about concerning the Gentiles, right? And he said, now don't test God because the Jews couldn't keep the law. So why do you want to put that on these Gentiles? And he concluded, we are all saved by grace. Then James comes and he quotes the prophets. And he, he makes a mention to the prophets in plural. And then he makes one kind of a loose um, in, um, quoting. It's not a direct quoting, but it's loose. Because it kind of can be a mixture of two or three places. Uh, the, the dominant one that most say is what? What is that quote coming from? Amos 9. Amos 9. So, Amos 9, 11 and 12. And in that, what does is, what is he tell us about, the, about what the prophets have said in previous times? Okay, yeah, I'm just trying to say, why did he quote this verse and what's his point? In, in relationship to the subject here. Yeah, okay. So he makes a reference back to an old prophet who also had already previously mentioned that Gentiles would come in to the covenant, that God's salvation has always in, um, had in its plan Gentiles as well. Okay. Any other points? 
So in essence, James backs up what Peter just said, right? About that he had been sent to them, and therefore that we are all saved by grace, right? He says also, he backs up uh, Peter. Concerning the Gentiles' uh, place in salvation, or uh, uh, the Gentiles. You're basically establishing that it was always the plan of God to bring the Gentiles in. Okay, it was always God's plan. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you know what? If you want to go back further, I thought of uh, the Genesis record when Abraham cut covenant with God. What did he tell Abraham himself through Genesis? It would have been in 15 and in 17 and in, was it 21 or 22, where he takes Isaac up, up to the mountain. He's tested and he um, puts him on the altar. And then God says, because you have done this, What's going to happen? It will be a blessing to all people of the world. That's right. That all people of the world would be blessed because, because you did this thing. So James then quotes the prophets, meaning the word of God, and he backs up Peter concerning the Gentiles in salvation, that it was always God's plan, right? It was always God's plan. So the conclusion, what did they conclude? What did James conclude, therefore? Because he, because he was able to support what Peter said by Scripture, right? This supported him. He supported Peter with Scripture, right? So then he concludes, and at the end of it, what? Don't trouble the Gentiles. Yeah, they should not trouble Okay, the Gentiles with keeping Jewish laws, right? Okay, that's where the question, that's where the real problem, this part really wasn't that hard. The next part is the tougher part, right? Okay, but so he says they should not trouble the Gentiles with keeping Jewish laws to be saved, right? So it's important that you get this part on here, to be saved, correct? Because he's not saying that they should never keep any laws, but just simply that salvation, it was not a prerequisite for, for salvation that they keep these laws. But instead, he comes up with an alternative thing because apparently there was enough discussion. And see, we don't get in the full discussion recorded here, but we get some allusions to it by the four things that they end up mentioning, Right? So they make mention, he makes mention of the of four things that he says, well, we do think that it would be good if they would do this. Now, how does he state it, actually? He exhorts them to basically to abstain, right? I'm just going to put on here, exhorts them to abstain. And what are they abstaining from? Let's just...
Okay, well, and that's really where you go is one results in the other. If, there's not a, if, there, if there is no um, willingness on the part of these two people groups, and we've seen that, have we not seen this actually come up earlier in Acts where there was a little bit of a tough going on between the Jewish, uh, the, the native Hebrews and the, um, what was the other one called? The Hellenistic, the Hellenistic Jews, that's right. And so since this has actually already come up once before, we're actually just seeing that this really is a a problem that they have to work through. And if they can't get to a place where they're in unity regarding one another, Jew and Gentile now is the additional thing, or even Jew and Hellenistic Jew, right? Then how do they ever get to a unity of spirit if they can't even get to a unity on a superficial level about superficial things, right? Right. So we see these four things that are mentioned. Now, in verse 29, he makes a very interesting statement, how he concludes in, in this account that concerning these things, what does he say? There you go. Now, th- does that sound like a commandment or a, more of an employee? A recommendation. Or a recommendation or a, it's a urging, or urging, which is why I use that word exhort over here. Okay, so if, and I like this word here too, if, if you do these, you do well. Now, At this point now in our discussion here, what we can see is we've settled the issue about saved by grace, right? Yes, they are saved by grace, correct? And they all, did they all seem to agree on that? Yes. But now we've come to the next issue is, well, then why, why did they add these in here? If they don't have to keep the law and these sound like they can be the law, right? Um, then why did they put these into place, correct? To me, like, this is a compromise. Okay, it is a compromise, it does seem. It's reminiscent of Romans 14. Thank you. Very good. You did exactly what I did. Hold on a second, let me pull this out. Um, I skipped 14, but I do have 14 also on my list, but also in 15, so... Turn with me to, in your Bibles to Romans 14 and 15. We're just going to re- read a little bit of this and talk about it before we go on to try to draw a little bit more conclusions about what these four things are talking about. Okay? Um, in 14, it, the whole chapter on the whole is, uh, I've titled it, Walk According to Love. Because what we've hit in, in Romans at the end of, these, uh, of all of these chapters is after giving all of these doctrines about sin and how you get saved and God's sovereignty and sanctification and so forth, all those things are taught doctrinally first, then the, or, or not sanctification, uh, sovereignty and I can't remember what the other one is, but at the very end then, starting in chapters 12 on, it's about sanctification, it's how we are to practically live out this thing called salvation, correct? Does it, is everybody kind of on board with that? Okay, so starting in, then uh, in chapter 12, he talks about 
that they are one body in Christ, and they're to to operate in that manner. Uh, They have a variety of gifts and so forth, but they they have all the same function. Uh, Talks about how they're to relate with authorities in the world. Says practical advice on what to do. Correct. Fourteen talks about walking according to to love, and and the issues that come up. It says now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who who is weak eats vegetables only. Um, let him not regard the one who eats with contempt who does not eat, and let him who does not eat judge him who does eat, for God has accepted him. So he goes on and talks about this. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind, whatever he's decided to do. And if we whatever we do, we do it for the Lord. But he says of this at the end of, of that chapter, starting in verse 13. But therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know that I am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of God's food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Then you go into chapter 15, and he actually just kind of further expounds on this, talking about the weaknesses of those. Let each one of us please his neighbor for his good. Um, Verse 5, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord you may be with one voice glorifying the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Now, does this mean accepting one another, meaning accepting sin and allowing them to continue in it? No. This is talking about the practical everyday things, the things that are, that are, that are non-essentials, right? Now, uh, it, non-essentials in that they don't matter for salvation. Things that, whether they eat one thing or whether they don't eat something. That's the example he gives here. Do you play cards? Do you wear a dress? Do you go to church, you know, um, or in the morning or in the afternoon? Or do you, you know, there are some do you take grape juice or wine? right? I mean, these are the non-essentials. And what we need to do is learn to love one another. And for the sake of peace, learn to compromise in a way that can make everyone feel comfortable. Uh, Being in a chapel system for so many years, we had this a lot. And I can tell you that initially when people would come in, brand new believers, and they would first get stationed at at the bases overseas, and they would come to chapel services, and the first couple of times they would sit through a a communion service where there was uh, uh, wine in the middle and grape juice on the outside, and the plate plate was passed, and you picked from whichever one you wanted. And some people got up from their chairs and went down front and knelt to receive the communion, and the rest of us sat in the chair and waited for someone to serve us. And they really were great at making it good for everybody. But the first time you encounter that, and you've just come from your own church denomination, and it's done this way, I can tell you there were some people who were not happy. They had to learn this principle of doing things for the sake of love and understanding that there are some things that are non-essentials, right? Yes. Uh, but Romans uh, fourteen twenty three, I think, is, is something that's really convicting. And it says, "But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because of eating the 
I believe that doing something is not a sin, but I, I try to convince somebody else that it's not a sin, and they go ahead and do it doubting, then basically I have caused them to sin. Because they did what I recommended, uh, not from but, lack, but doubting whether it was right or not. You know what I'm saying? I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not sure I'm following you. But <laughs> if, somebody, if somebody plays cards and they think it may not be right, you know, that it might be sinful to play cards, then they're sinning according to Romans 4. Right. They themselves are, not the person that they've... And you've tempted them into it. And then they do it. But the sin is theirs, not yours. Well, your sin would be not loving them to respect where they're at. Right, right. I agree. I agree. Yes, it does. It does. And, of course, it's a whole other subject. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks, Craig. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. They they can be, yes, but it's another subject, so yes. Okay. Okay, so but although in a way it isn't another subject, because in essence that kind of takes us back to this thing. So now let's talk about these four things just a little bit. How much time have I got? Just a few okay. Um things sacrificed to idols, fornication, blood, and things strangled. Now, yes. Right. Okay. But the rest of it is more, it was practiced. Practiced by who? By the Jews. By the Jews. Okay, so let me do this. Very easy that not to do this. That's exactly right. So I'm just wondering if that was a compromise. One was clear, you don't mess with God's law, but the other one is maybe just to, to appease the Jews. Right. Okay, so this is this was kind of my question too. And I can tell you guys honestly, I've not fully worked this all out in my head yet. I'm still I'm still kind of mulling this through a little bit. And I've read I've gotten tons of commentaries. I've done a lot of reading. I've done a lot of cross referencing. I've done a lot of research. I mean but so far th- there's a debate about exactly what's going on here. What I, what I come back to is these principles. This is something new. They also don't really know what they're doing yet. They're probably as confused as I am right now, <laughs> right? They're trying, to, they're trying to figure out how to make church work in a way that can take two people groups that before were distinctive and separate and bring them together, right? So... I noticed, in, as I observed it, and, and I think you all confirmed it by just what was said, it seems like the first two things are very clear. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. Can you fornicate? And it's okay with God in this new thing called the covenant? No. Abs- sexual impurities are wrong. It is sin, and it is, we're to abstain from it. Romans chapter uh, 6, 7, no, 6, uh, I can't remember. Romans 6, I think, um, where he talks about you are no longer a slave to sin, but you're a slave to righteousness and to God, correct? So we know the, that the fornication thing and also the things sacrificed to idols. Now, who would be most affected by things sacrificed to idols that they would need to avoid it? Would that be the Jews? No, no that would really be Gentiles. So.
Yeah. Well, so to me, this looks like half and half. This is stuff that they're being talked or told, not that they have to do these things to be saved, because what in reality is going to happen, according to Ezekiel and according to Jeremiah, is that in the new covenant, when God gives you his spirit, what will he do with, with you? He removes the heart of stone, gives you a heart of flesh, places the spirit within you, and causes you to walk in God's precepts and his statutes. God's principles of Moral and ethical right and wrong have never changed. They don't change from the old covenant into the new. But how are we going to blend these two things? And so at this point, I don't think they're really talking about that as in full detail. What they're really doing is talking about how to make these two groups who seem to have clashed because the one group was saying, well, you have to be a Jew if you're going to get saved, right? And the Jew and the Gentiles are obviously over here going, now, wait a minute. Paul, is that right? And Paul's going, no, no. And he debates them, right? And then they end up with this council meeting. So the argument is, how do you make Jew and Gentiles come together? So somehow in this, they made the conclusion that they're all saved by grace and that it's not necessary for a Gentile to become a Jew, right? So that part was solidly stated and everybody actually agreed on that. Wow. But the compromise seems to be then that they should not, they, they, they should, um, abstain from these things. Part of them related to things that really pertains to them as Gentiles, and part of it relates to those people who are Jews. And together, if they, will do, if they are willing to do this much, then the church will edify one another and build one another up. Here's the problem that might have occurred early in that church, and I bet it did happen a lot. Um, Gentiles who come into faith who've always had freedom to do anything and everything, right? Now they still have freedom to do anything and everything, but they have not yet fully learned the moral laws of God, right? Because they've not been under Judaism and been taught the moral laws. Um, so for them, things like sacrifice, things being sacrificed to idols and fornication would be identifying markers that take them back into paganism, back into their Gentile world, correct? And people would not see a distinguishing mark upon them. What is one of the distinguishing marks as Christians? What must, what must accompany us that gives us a distinguishing mark in our world? What makes us look different to the world so that they say, oh, she's a Christian, or oh, she must be a Christian, <laughs> one or the other, however you want to view that, right? In my case, I'd be going, ooh, I think she's a Christian. I think I'm going to find out, <laughs> you know, and I want, to, I want to befriend the person like that. So these are, to me, it looks to me like the compromise is going on here. Now, one of the things that's interesting is how he follows this up. He's in verse... Um, Let's see, I've got to find my scriptures now because I turned my page over. Hold on, let me get to my observation worksheet. He says to them in verse um, 21, for, do you see the word for there at that very first word? For, what does for tell you? What does that word for tell you? Did you mark it in a distinguished way on your observation worksheet? Therefore, for, it's kind of like a therefore. 
Exactly. And the for then connects this thought back to the things that are previously said. So the word for Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach um, him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So he's saying they need to do these things because of what Moses teaches in the synagogues every week. So that really does directly tie it back definitely to the Jews and, and understanding that this would be something for the Jews, particularly those who are not yet in faith, but might be interested in coming into faith. But if they see Gentiles within the household of this new thing called the congregation or the church, they would be greatly offended if they saw them eating blood, for instance, eating meat with blood in it. If they even saw them eating meat or things that had been sacrificed to idols. If they were, if particularly this one, the fornication, I'm going, why did that one even have to get put on there? Except that the Gentiles were so steeped in it that they had to understand there was a, there had to be a prohibition on this. The, the thing sacrificed to idols is not a real good translation of the Greek. Right. It, the first time that it's brought up in Acts um, 20, I think, it really says abstain from the defilement of idols. And then when it comes to the actual letter itself, it says abstain from the meal offered to idols. In other words, don't sit down to a... A A covenant meal. It's a covenant meal. Yes. Yes. Abstain from idolatry rather than abstain from the things sacrificed to idols. Things sacrificed to idols. Or... Someplace, Paul, I can't remember where it was, said to people that, hey, don't ask, don't tell kind of thing. You know, if, if you're stuff in the marketplace that might be meat that uh, sacrificed to idols. He says, it's okay to eat it. it just don't ask. Right, right. As long as it's not offending someone, which takes us back to what we saw in Romans 14 and 15. I don't. I would say that you are probably correct on that. And and one of the other things I remember is back when we did our seven churches study, which was how many umpteen years ago now. But I remember there was one part of our study that talked about guilds and why the reason for the Christians being told not to participate in guilds had to do with idolatry, that in order to be in a guild, you also had to make sacrifices and contributions to various idols, right? And literally the guild of leather or the guild of pottery or the guild of copper or brass, those were gods to them and they worshiped them. And so to be a guild member uh, actually put them right into the, into the seat of being an idol worshiper and so what the ch- that particular church was being told was that they, could, they were not to participate in that. And by doing that, they were really putting their business on the line. Because if they didn't belong to a guild, they didn't get the protection of the guild. They didn't get the support of the guild. You know, they were out there on their own. And financially, it, it could be their demise. But it was a requirement in that particular letter. Now I wish I could remember which of the churches it was. But it was one of those seven churches writings. T- we studied about the guilds. And it kind of along the same lines. Even though this says things sacrificed to idols, it's just saying be affiliated with idolatry. And that makes perfect sense. Idolatry and, and, and sexual fornication in particular, but, but fornication meaning any kind of perversion or sin, really, if you want to expound on it. Later, 
In Romans, Paul does do that. He goes in there then and expounds on the idea that they, that they are no longer to be slaves to sin, but they're to be uh, slaves to righteousness, right? So in this particular account then, what we see is another church moment when they're having to resolve this conflict of how to handle these two people groups coming together into this new thing called the church. They absolutely defined, and I think James was saying it earlier, that this is one of the more important um, chapters, really, in the book of Acts, where we, st- we see really the first, the first uh, introduction where they, they battle out salvation is by grace and not by works. So it's a precursor, really, to other writings that come later. It's the Protestant Reformation, 1500. Isn't that the truth? Before it even happened, exactly. You're right. In in many ways, it is. It's it never sh- the 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 teaching that we went into should have never happened yeah. if they had been adhering to this. And the other thing that was significant in the Protestant Reformation was going back to Scripture alone, which is what James does. Here. Right. You know, he goes he goes back to Scripture as the mm-hmm. foundation. He goes, this is our rule of, of faith. This is how we ultimately decide things. Yeah. Yes. All right. So that was really fun, a fun little thing. Now, what, any other questions or, or thoughts on this before we move back over here? I want to go back to the flow of thought and also uh, show you through the whole counsel of God's word how we also validate the conclusions that they have come to here in this chapter. Oh, good for you. They rejoiced because of the encouragement. Yes, that was exact. And I forgot to go back there. That was something I did want to point out. So thank you for doing that. Because the conclusion of this was, was everybody happy at the end? Yes, they were. They all went on and were happy and content in it. And the Gentiles themselves, who had been the ones who had been affronted, basically, by being told they had to, to take two steps backwards, you know, and become a Jew in order to, to get their salvation, they were rejoicing and they were encouraged by the, conclu- by the decision of the council. So whatever these restrictions technically meant, I think we've got a pretty good idea, but the fact that they were exo- they were being exhorted to simply abstain from them, and it says, and if you do them, you do well, and this pleased them, because then they felt the burden was lifted. They're no longer a requirement for salvation, but simply an expectation of holy living, which is something that will come out later in additional teachings as, as we move forward. It's not addressed here, but it will come up later. All right, so let's talk about... Um, One last point, which is on this flow of thought. Let's go back to chapter 10, because I think it's really cool. Even if we didn't do all that we had done here, we could have even just gone back to chapters 10 to to 14 and seen the points about this issue of salvation is by grace and not by works, because it's already been presented to us. So let's go back to chapter 10 first. And in chapter 10, it was Peter's vision right? And uh, Gentiles receiving the Holy Spirit. All right, so that was in chapter 10. 
Now, start in, go back in your observation worksheet, uh, look in at, at 10 in verse 15 and 16. Because we know this is where the Gentiles are first getting the Holy Spirit, correct? So what is it that God showed to Peter in that vision? When he had the vision that sent him to go to the Gentiles. That sheet had come down. And what does he say in 15 and 16? Okay, and then I think another significant point is what follows it is how often did this happen? Why is that significant for a Jewish thinking person? A confirmation was done by three times. It's like, you know, verily, verily, you know, those kinds of things. There's always the, the, the repetition of it shows that. So what we see then is, is previously what has been taught. That's what we're discussing right now. What has previously in the flow of thought already been taught to us about this subject of salvation is by grace. And that it's for the Jews or the Gentiles as well. Number one, he, sa- he says in there, um, oh, I forgot what I was thinking. Oh, God, do not consider. Unholy. What God calls. Or unclean, right? What God calls clean. All right, so that was in verses 10, uh, 10, 15, and 16. Then he says in 34 and 35, then what? Because of this insight that God gave him, therefore, what did he conclude in, the, in verses 34 and 35? Anybody who cares and and so, but in every nation, the man who fears God and does what is right is what? Welcome to. So this was already previously taught to Peter, and Peter conveyed it to those around him already. So in essence, really, in the flow of thought, before we even got to this, Peter has already addressed this initially through what God taught him through that day and that vision in chapter 10 and as he then took him to the Gentiles for their salvation so he says there men of every nation are welcome he already stated that it's a fact he stated so I'm going to say 10 this is 34 and 35 and then if you look at at the close of it in 44 to 48 just to continue to affirm that insight. Peter, while he's still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening. <clears throat> and the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. And what was the confirmation? There's Speaking in tongues again, there's the sign. So we see then that they are welcome, and then the Gentiles were saved. So that's in 44 to 48. So that's chapter 10. Peter, in 
And that was for the Samaritans. That's exactly correct. <laughs> Yeah. Maybe, maybe, but you know, then again, he had already had a vision, and he had already been spoken to by God, and then he found out that Cornelius had had a vision because he had conveyed that to him, and he's like, "Wow, okay." So I think he probably was already, pre, you know, pre pre. Uh, previewed or prepared he kind of saw there were some supernatural things going on here the vision was a dead giveaway for one but then when Cornelius had also had a vision and when he got down there and not only that but when he got there and he saw how God-fearing these people were I think that that impressed him also as well so yeah Uh, were the Samaritans considered because they, the Jews, boarded them like You know, they weren't because they were those half-breeds that we talked about before. And I hate that word. But it, they were really this, they were this interim group. They weren't fully Gentile and they weren't fully Jew. What they, what they would do is they took a lot of, of Jewish teaching and they had a lot of knowledge of Jewish teaching. Remember the woman at the well and her conversation with Jesus. So they had partial truths. But they weren't exercising it fully like the the Jews, uh, the full Jews were. But so they were this in between spot. But they were they, they avoided them like they did the Gentiles. Yes, but they were a distinguished class, and in this book we really see that clearly shown to us that that they are distinguished from the Gentiles. Yeah, you're welcome. Okay, so chapter eleven. What happens in chapter eleven? What what is Peter doing there? Okay, so Peter defends Gentile salvation in that particular chapter. So there's a whole chapter on it. If you look at Peter testifies how the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit. He concluded that God had granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life, and the Jews glorified God. So there, there had already been this entire conversation if you go back into chapter 10 this subject of do gentiles get saved really had already been prefaced in the flow of thought we've already seen it it's not like we we drop into chapter 15 and it's a brand new subject right we've already seen it demonstrated to us so then after chapter 11 you go to chapters 13 and 14 and they're kind of a i just put them together because they kind of flow together as one Okay. That's verse 19, after they all agreed that, you know, the Gentiles were receiving salvation. So, so then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenician, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews alone. And, and so there's still some that are only going to the Jews, but then they do say that there are others who went to the Gentiles. But there's still that group coming out of Jerusalem that are, you know, kind of still a little bit in the Jewish mindset. Yeah, we not until we reach chapter 13 where where God sends uh, Barnabas and Saul out on that first missionary journey. And then at some point in that journey, Paul then makes a very declarative statement, look, I'm going to the Gentiles. You guys keep refusing it and rejecting it. I'm just going to go to the Gentiles. 
uh, up to that point, they kept trying to go to the Jew first, which is apparently said that in his statement on that, he said it was required, really. It was necessary for him to do that. And even though he said he was just going to go to the Gentiles, he kept going into the synagogue. I know he did. He couldn't help himself. Because do you remember what Paul says about, is it in Romans, about how... Yes, how much he loves them and how he would, he would basically die for them if they, if they could only come to salvation, if his own brethren could come into faith. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. But since you refuse it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. So he had already received the marching orders from God. He just hadn't fully done it yet, which I think is kind of interesting. It's like he's kind of doing it, but he's not. Well, now he's fully thrown into it because there's been enough rejection that now he's going to go and do what God said he was going to do him, use him for all along. Okay, so he, he defends Gentile salvation. Then 13 and 14, this is their first missionary journey. I'm just going to put first journey. And in that first journey, then, he, he says he's going to, he ends up going then, he goes to Gentiles because the Jews refuse. I think it's interesting, number one, because they refuse, but number two, God told him to. I know it. That's so funny. I don't know if you guys ever noticed this, but it's really kind of in this order in the in the unfolding story. He he goes to the he says he's going to go he's he is going to go to the Gentiles in this chap in these two chapters, but he does it number one because the Jews refused, right? And then he says, and by uh, by the way, God told us to. We're going to do exactly what God commanded us to. So it's like the second reason he does it. The first reason is because the Jews won't listen. <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny. Is that not you and I sometimes? <laughs> when they talk about the Sabbath here in, in uh, Acts, are they talking about Saturday or Sunday? I think it's still Saturday because the Sabbath has not been declared yet. There hasn't been that... that that split yet where they made that that was again a council thing where they made that decision to move us yeah so it's not been made yet okay so in 13 to 14 it said he says in verse 1338 what Okay, so it's belief in Jesus, then, for forgiveness of sin. So that's been taught to the Jews previously, correct? Mm-hmm. Then go to 39, and then what does he say? And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Okay, so then he follows on. He says, first of all, it's, it's by believing in Jesus that you get forgiveness. And what doesn't save you? The law of Moses. So has he already addressed this issue with them already in previous, in our flow of thought? Yes. So in 38 and 39 of chapter 13, he makes it really clear that this issue really has already been discussed. It's in our flow of thought. He's really already taught it in verses 38 and 39. Then he says in 47, in 1347, what? Because the gospel was refused, what? 
then he's going to go and be a light to the Gentiles. So number he teaches in this thing here, number one, um, belief in Jesus um, for forgiveness of sins. And then number two is you cannot be freed from sin by the law. Okay, so that's the flow of thought, right? And now the cross-references, which we can do very briefly. We aren't going to go through all of them. But on day four of your homework, this is the list I asked you guys to make sure you pulled out and had handy. Uh, In Romans 3, we looked at verses 9 to 24. Does that support what we've seen thus far? Because this is where you take this process of, uh, what does it say? Uh, never violate your known doctrines. Context is king. Let the immediate context rule heaviest for interpretations made. And now what we're doing is use the whole book of Acts. We just did that. So we went back, we did the flow of thought. That's using the whole book of Acts to clarify what might be taking place in this particular passage where, where the complications came. And then last of all, you need to observe the full counsel of God's word um, to finalize conclusions. Now, what we're looking at is finalizing conclusion, which is salvation by, by um, faith and not by the law. This other portion down here is a whole other subject. Now, if we'd had time and we didn't, it would be nice to go back in and do a little more research on this to build this up, to look at what were some of the struggles with Gentiles? Why would these things be things that they needed to abstain from? What historically has been recorded? How would the Jews of that synagogue, or synagogue of that church, um, how would they have viewed anyone who did participate in these things of the Gentiles? And what kind of a rift might be put between them if they participated in, for instance, blood and things strangled? For a Jew, how hard would that be to handle? Very, very tough. We went back and looked at Leviticus 17 in one of our references, and that was an old familiar friend to most of us that did Leviticus before. What was Leviticus chapter 17 all about? What was the doctrine being taught there? What did God tell Israel that? In Leviticus 17? Okay, I'm, I'm missing it. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. An individual would kill an animal, and it specified the animals in the text. Right. Is it an ox or a ram or lambs? Right. What were they to do with the blood? Bring it to the, uh, bring the animal to the place of meeting. Mm-hmm. There you go, exactly. Because the final conclusion that we came to about, Act, about Leviticus chapter 17, for Israel as a nation, what was blood to be used for? Atonement only. Absolutely nothing else. If they came into contact with blood or, or um, even, even if they accidentally touched something or if they killed something, if it had to be brought to the altar for atonement. It was, the blood was to be for atonement only. Otherwise, they had processes that they could go through for purification. Part of it had to do with draining the blood and covering it up with the earth. That was one of the things they could do. Um, 
And so what we saw in that particular chapter was how significant blood was, which made sense then when we went in later into, um, I think it was in chapter 12, where we saw the woman after she'd given birth, she had to have a, a purification taking place, right? So she had to have a cleansing also. Because why? She, through childbirth, had come into contact with blood. And because blood is for the atonement only and for the altar only, it was a reserved picture of such holiness, of such high holy consecration, that there were all these very specific laws about anything had to do with blood. So for a Jew who's just come out of that, and has all their life been, whoa, blood's only for atonement. You can't touch it. You can't do any of these things. Now, the thing strangled, does anybody, can anybody help me with that one a little bit? Because that one, I didn't get a chance to research much. I was trying to picture myself, and I got the idea that a strangled animal with blood has not been... Drained, mm-hmm. You can't drain it. So you're, yeah, you're, you're eating basically eating bloody flesh. Got it. Okay, that makes sense now. I get it. Okay, so then it would be bloody flesh that had not been drained and properly, which would meet kosher law and allowing them then to use that. Okay, got it. Okay, so these last two have to do with really causing an affront or a, or a, or a um, riff, basically, for a Jewish person. The other two were not things that would cause a riff for the Gentiles, but it would be things that they would be willing to go back to pretty easily. Because it just came out of that, and it would be important for them to be instructed at this point that there are some things that you do need to abstain from. And they will probably be getting much further instruction and much more detail on holy living as their uh, time in Christ goes on and as the church gets further developed. We know that Paul, particularly, not to mention many of the other writers, go on and write fully instructions on sanctification and righteous living and holiness and abstaining from sin and, you know, being consecrated unto God and being a new man in Christ and all these subjects, right, that get written about later. But at this point in history, they're just giving them two basically simple things, which actually encompass a great deal of their life, idolatry and fornication. It was the church of Pergamum. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, and to eat things sacrificed to idols and commit acts of immorality. There you go. So, so oh, that's very good. Let, let me have, that was uh, Pergamum, you said, right? Pergamum, that's uh, three. Yeah, okay. Revelation 3, Okay, I'm going to put that on my note because that is exactly. Oh, excuse me, two Okay. Okay, so I'm going to put that down because did you all hear that? pretty clearly, the Church of Pergamum, actually one of the um, chastisements when God is bringing uh, um, charges against these churches, the one at Pergamum then is charged with this very thing, allowing these things to be continuing in God's church. Wow. So they they weren't abstaining, were they?
it would have been like um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saying, well, I'll bow down, but I'm not going to really worship them. Right, exactly. That's right. Oh, boy. Okay, now, do we see that today? Do we see Christians today do those very same things, have compromises, and they actually continue to live in sin and to do the things that they, sh- they are truly, it's, it's obvious they should not be doing, and yet they've convinced themselves that because it's all by grace, they can do this. Yeah, we do. We do see it all. And Paul addresses it. Should we sin all the more just because it's by grace? Should we continue in sin? May it never be. That's right. It's like going to, um, you know, a idol worship meal and saying, well, I don't really believe it, but I'll go because it's helping my business. Mm-hmm. That's right. Exactly. Um, we didn't get to go into the dis- the despair between the or the, the uh, conflict that went on between Paul and Barnabas concerning Mark. But what was the conclusion of all that after you went and did your research? Cross-references about Paul and Mark's relationship eventually. eventually they They're reconciled eventually, are they not? And what bar- part does Barnabas play in that? Yes, he was related to him. That's right. And uh, when Peter was released from prison, he went to the ha- their house. Mm-hmm. Uh, the mother's house. The mother's house in Yeah. And uh, they had a servant girl, which seems to say that they're also kind of well off. Right. Today. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they were prominent early church. Yes. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. How how significant can that be if you've got a leader in a church who just washes their hands of you yeah. and says, "Well, I'm just done with you." That's hard. So he was encouraged by yeah. I love what Paul does at the very end of Paul's life. He says, "He says what." He calls him my beloved son, and he says, "I sin for him because he's what." useful to me. And I just think that what a great ending of that particular story. Yes, there was a conflict, but in the end it got resolved. And it got resolved because one person, Barnabas, stood up and stood with, and that is that and that is his name, that son of encouragement. That he was he became a son of encouragement to Mark. So that encourages us to do that, doesn't it? All right. Any other thoughts or whatever?